0: 8 p.m. Wednesday, September 4th, 2002, Great Bend, Kansas. A truck driver makes his nightly delivery at the Dolly Madison Cakes Discount Bakery Store. When he goes to the small office in the building to finish up his paperwork, he makes a grisly discovery. The bodies of two women lie face down on the floor in pools of their own blood. (laughs) Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murders. Host may hurt listeners' feelings. Give unsolicited advice. Be politically incorrect and judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I do not currently reside in any of our prisons. Also. I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or psychology. I'm just a true crime fan who researches murders and tries to be accurate, so I can share what interests me with you. Opinions on this podcast are not professional ones. Listeners, I apologize for being so late with this episode of the podcast. When I decided to do Prison City Murders last summer, I was sure I could do a podcast every week, like True Crime Garage and another favorite of mine, The Trail Went Cold, all the really good podcasters. I mean, I'm retired. I have an empty nest. Well, not so fast, Jenna. As many retired people discover, I'm busier most days retired than I was working full-time and raising kids. Now, don't get me wrong, I love retirement, but lately life is interfering greatly with the podcast. As I'm recording this on March 21st, 2020, the coronavirus, or covid-19 has hit kansas if you're listening in the future you already know how all this turns out but at this point we don't plus as i think i told you guys we recently sold our country home and it sold a lot faster than we expected. So we've been scrambling to get moved into town. We're still living out of boxes. The plan, as of now at least, is to redo the historic home we own in Leavenworth. It's a big red brick house, honestly kind of spooky looking, built in 1869, Currently it's five apartments that we've had rented out for years so it will take a lot of work to get it into single-family type shape but we think it will be worth it. Maybe by this time next year we'll be settled in. In the meantime well let's just say Our place is very small, even for just the two of us. Self-isolating with my husband is, let's just say, challenging. Anyway, even without all this, a weekly podcast is also challenging. It's fun, but it's challenging. More like every 10 days or bi-weekly, I think, is more realistic. In my professional life, I was a software engineer. Deadlines slipping in the computer world are constant. When we got behind and a client asked when they would get their stuff, our answer was, you get it when you get it. Well, we said it more tactfully than that, but that was the gist. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's my podcast and nobody's paying me. So You get new podcasts when they show up in your feet. Okay, I'll stop whining for a while. Let's talk about murder. Our two victims are Mandy Alexander, age 24, and Mary Drake, age 79. Their murders are extremely violent. There's not much information about the details of the murders. Most of what I found was in the Great Bend Tribune, and they're reporting on what law enforcement tells them, which isn't very detailed. Listeners, I understand that this is standard operating procedure for law enforcement, and I get it. For one thing, they need to be able to screen out tips that don't fit the crime, like if somebody calls in a tip and, say, the murder weapon is wrong, or somebody confesses but can't get the circumstances of the crime right. Plus, they may not want to show their hand to suspects. But I will say this is frustrating for me who I want to know every detail I can get for the podcast and just to help settle in my mind what really happened. So yeah, I wish they would just let the public know everything, but I understand why they don't. I will say this, however. After a long, long time has passed and no progress is being made, they might want to rethink what information gets released. In a very cold case, if there's some distinctive fact they haven't made public, releasing that information might jog someone's memory. Anyway, just something to think about. In this case, which has come to be known as the Dolly Madison murders, all I can say with pretty good certainty is that the crime scene is very bloody and both women's throats are cut. The murder weapon is a quote, sharp object, unquote, which has never been found. So we have vicious, unprovoked, bloody murder in this case. Mandy K. Sutherland is born May 15, 1978, in Great Bend, Kansas, to parents Guy and Karen Sunderland. She has three sisters and a brother. I couldn't find many details about Mandy's life at the time of the murder, except that she's a single mother with two daughters who had just gotten the job at the Dolly Madison shop. And she is just finishing her third day there when she's murdered. According to one of her friends, she wasn't even supposed to work that day. She was filling in. From all I can tell, she had a normal working-class upbringing. At the time of her death, her last name is Alexander, Alexander. But her social security records also show another name, another last name, sorry, Redman, R-E-D-M-A-N. So, I don't know, maybe two marriages? Not sure. Anyway, she's been divorced for a while. Her mother gave the Great Bend Tribune an interview. The reporter is Susan Thacker. It's a very good article from uh, 2012 about the unsolved case. Karen says that Mandy made mistakes, but she'd found a church and her life was taking a turn for the better. Quote, she was drawn back in that direction, unquote. Listeners, isn't it sad how often just when somebody seems to be getting their life back on track, they get murdered. I think that's one reason we hate murder so very much is it it cuts all the promise in life out of someone. The picture of Mandy um, that you find online the most is from the reward poster at the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, KBI, website. I'll put the KBI link on my website. The resolution on Mandy's photo is pretty low. I wonder if it might be from her Dolly Madison employee file. Looks almost looks to me like she has a hairnet and a little bakery smock on. There's some more personal photos of her on an old MySpace account set up by a friend of hers. She's very cute and just nice looking and so young. It's heartbreaking to look at her pictures. Now, while Mandy's not long into her adult life when she's murdered, Mary Drake, who's pushing 80, can look back on a well-lived life. Mary Arthurica, or Arthurica? Campbell is born February 13, 1923, in Great Bend. Her mother was Mary Ellen, maiden name Keenan Campbell, and her father was Arthur Campbell. So I think that explains her unusual middle name, Arthurica. I'm guessing it's after her father. The Campbells are a big Catholic family, at least one brother and six sisters that I could find. Mary and her husband, John Drake, a mechanic, raised two children, John and Sandra. The last record I could find with them together is from 1963. But but honestly, in, in looking through records like that, there is... It is hard to find records much more recent than that about people online. So, you know, they, they could have been together a lot longer than that. Um, on, Google, on Google Maps, um, the house, which is at um, 1424 17th Street in Great Bend, is a modest ranch-style house with a carport. Now, after 1963, the next record I could find was from 1993 with just Mary at that house. And I I never could find anything about a death of John or divorce records or anything like that. So I, I'm not sure, but it, it just looks like maybe he's not in her life after that. There's no mention of a husband in Mary's obituary. And usually in obituaries, they say if a woman is a widow. So I'm thinking they got divorced at some point. At the time of her death, Mary is retired from working on the assembly line at the Fuller Brush Company in Great Bend. She has six grandchildren and five great-grandkids. Her picture shows a lively, silver-haired, almost 80-year-old grandmother. She looks like the mom Sophia on the Golden Girls with a little bit shorter hair. And now I notice that Mandy and Mary's pictures have exactly the same blue background. So they're driver's license pictures. (laughs) Yes, they look just like my driver's license pictures. And I'm not too crazy about that picture. I bet Mandy and Mary weren't either, although I don't think they're bad pictures. I mean, you know, it's not like they're wanted for murder. I think the KBI, when you do posters and and then you don't solve somebody's murder or disappearance for decades, at least ask the family for a nice picture of the victim to put out there. Sorry, listeners. I suspect it won't be my last rant on this podcast. Before I forget, uh, let me give you some background on Great Bend, Kansas, the setting for the murders. I call it a small city. Now and in 2002, the population is about 15,000. The city is named after a in the river that's near the city. The river is the Arkansas River. Yes, that's how we say it in Kansas, not Arkansas like the state. Anything else to do with Arkansas we say correctly, but for some reason the river is the Arkansas River. It flows southeast from Colorado into Kansas. Then it turns northeast at Dodge City and goes up to Great Bend, where there's voila a Great Bend in the river, turning it back southeast toward Hutchinson. So Great Bend is pretty much right in the heart of Kansas. I'm on the east side of Kansas near Kansas City. Great Bend's a about a four-hour drive west of here, a couple of hours west of both Topeka and Wichita, maybe a couple hours from Wichita and Topeka. If you're heading west on Interstate 70, you turn south onto U.S. Highway 281, which intersects with us highway 56 so there are two major highways that go through great bend the city started in the 1870s the area was in kiowa indian territory it was a pretty rough place at first it's just a few dugouts and sod houses then the railroad got there and great bend grew like crazy, because it was a very good point to ship cattle from. So like Dodge City and Abilene and other maybe more famous railheads, um, the cowboys could deliver their herds there, get paid, and start celebrating, or whatever you want to call it. Great Bend was a notorious, lawless, Cowtown for a while. Things finally settled down when the state legislature moved what was called the deadline farther west, bypassing Great Bend. The deadline was sort of a border. No cattle herds coming up from Texas could go east of there. So after that, Great Bend became known more as a nice, prosperous, sedate agricultural center for Kansas. Now, several nice-sized employers do business in Great Bend still do. The company that Mary Drake retired from, the Fuller Brush Company, moved to Great Bend in the 1970s. Fuller Brush is kind of an interesting company Just like it sounds, they specialize in making brushes for cleaning and grooming. I can remember my dad's military shaving kit had Fuller brushes in it. They were primarily known as a door-to-door sales company, one of the first to use women in sales. They called them Fullerettes. There's even a movie from 1950 with Lucille Ball called The Fuller Brush Girl. It came out the year before I Love Lucy started on TV. The trailer is like a scene from I Love Lucy. It shows Lucy working one of those old-timey switchboards and blowing it up, basically. It's really kind of funny. Um, The notes say her character stumbles on a murder while she's going door to door, trying to sell fuller brushes, and then she becomes the prime suspect. It actually looks like kind of a cute movie. Maybe now that I'm self-isolated, I'll have time to sit and watch it. It's available on Google Play and iTunes. We've heard about The Dolly Madison Company already, If you're not familiar with the Dolly Madison brand, they produce baked goods. Most famous for zingers, which are delicious little chocolate treats. Tender, delicious chocolate cake with swirly chocolate icing, delicious. The company's heyday, I would say, was probably the sixties and seventies. They produced a wide variety of baked goods, bread and buns, and um, those little donuts. I think, I think the little donuts are called gems. You know, the the white powdered sugar kind and the kind of waxy chocolate covered ones. Um, I'm mixing them up a little bit with Hostess products. Hostess is a similar company in the United States. They're famous for Hostess cupcakes and Twinkies with delicious fluffy white stuff in the middle of them. Hostess and Dolly Madison are the same company now, um, headquartered in Kansas City, I think. Um, there, There was a big... I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, they were going to go out of business, and there was a merger or something. Anyway, you can still get Hostess Cupcakes and Zingers and things like that, but I think they're basically the same company now. Um, Not as big as they were, and, and, and I don't know if they do breads and all that stuff or not. As far as I can tell, the shop where the murders took place was an outlet for the big bakery and distribution center in Great Bend. And after the murders, the shop never reopened, which makes a lot of sense. The building is still there. Um, If you're in the area, the address is 1004 Harrison Street. And 10th Street and Harrison Street form a major intersection in Great Bend. 10th is a four-lane road, and Harrison is a two-lane road with a turning lane there at the corner where the Dolly Madison shop was. Farmer's Bank is across the street. McDonald's is just catty corner from where the Dolly Madison shop was and there's a traffic light there. Let me see if I can describe this setting for you, at least what you see nowadays. I think not too much different from what you'd see back in 2002. Say you're going west on 10th Street in Great Bend, which is actually the business part of U.S. Highway 56, so a major highway for sure. On the north, you'll pass a motel, nowadays a travel lodge, not sure what it was in 2002, but there was a motel there, and a restaurant. Now... A little Mexican restaurant. If you stop at Harrison Street at the light, the Dolly Madison shop is just to your right, so it's on the north side of 10th Street. To your left, behind you, is an Applebee's restaurant. That's a, a US chain of oh, kind of home-style sports bar type restaurants. Um, Let's see, just to the left, you would see their parking lot, which is pretty big. Ahead of you to the left on the opposite corner is McDonald's. Then to the right across Harrison Street is Farmers Bank and Trust. There was a bank there in 2002. The way banks change ownership all the time, it might not have been a farmer's bank back then, but it was a, there was a bank there. As you're sitting at the light, if you look directly to the right, you can see the Dolly Madison shop. Now, you're not looking at the front of the store, you're looking at the side of the building. There's a little rectangular brick building with a, fat, a flat roof, not, not the bakery shop just a little building. Nowadays, it's a little shop for smoking supplies, and I don't know, that might have been what it was back then. It looks like about the right size for just a little tiny shop. Now, just past that is a much bigger barn-like building. That's It's the same brick. Looks like they're basically built at the same time. I think they're two separate buildings, but there's just maybe three or four feet, a meter or so, in between them, with a passageway set up between them. To get to the Dolly Madison shop, you would turn right and then immediately right again, and you'd be parked right in front of the shop. They may have widened the road since 2002, but even then, there's not much room in front of the shop before you're standing right in the street the bank itself is not directly across from the shop looks like the main part of the bank is a little north at the end of a strip mall it's kind of hard to tell i i think there's shops and offices maybe in between and then on the south end of the little strip mall is an ATM machine for the bank and a few rows of parking in front. There. I hope that gives you a good picture of the area. It was, if you want to look on Google Earth yourself, it's it's 1004 Harrison Street, Great Bend, Kansas. Um, so where the murders occurred is a fairly busy area. But the shop itself doesn't really have any close-by close neighbors. It's not an area where I would expect to see whole bunches of witnesses just walking by or anything like that. Now, as I've said, there aren't many details out there from law enforcement about the circumstances of the murders. As usual, with breaking cases like this, the newspaper articles right after do differ some, but the little that they say is fairly consistent. I think it's safe to say that the murders take place between five and seven pm on September 4th, 2002. The Great Bend Police Chief Dean Akings says that they are going through cash register receipts from the shop and tracking down those customers. Quote, We're missing a couple of people that bought items from 5.15 to 6 p.m. We really want to concentrate on that time period. Unquote. It would be helpful to know closing time at the Dolly Madison shop, I would expect the murderer to plan on going in as late as possible, but I couldn't find a closing time for the store. I looked up a couple of Sara Lee stores in my area, and they close at 7. I'm kind of surprised they're open that late. I would think more like 6 o'clock. It's not the type of store that would do a huge volume of business, so I would think... There could be long stretches of time with no customers. Although there might be a little rush of customers after people get off work. September 4th is a Friday evening. So yeah, you'd probably get people stocking up on bread and hot dog buns and hamburgers for the weekend. Sunset's about 7.30 p.m. that time of year, so it wouldn't be dark out yet. Altogether, my best guess is the murders occur between 6 and 7 p.m. as Mandy's getting ready to close the store. The early news stories give very little information other than the identities of the two women and the approximate time of the murders. In all of the news stories out there, the very best account I could find was from the 2012 interview with Mandy's mother, Karen Sunderland, and the Great Bend Tribune, the evening of September 4, 2002, a truck driver stopped at the bakery store to make a delivery and discovered Drake and Alexander's bodies inside. Both were face down in pools of blood in a small office area in the back of the store, and although the driver didn't realize it, their throats had been cut listeners if this is accurate it's utterly chilling if the murderer slashes from the front it seems like the victims would fall back so did he coldly turn them over to make them bleed out faster maybe ugh I guess it's more likely he cut their throats from the back. Oh, and and there is one news story account that says there were two delivery men. I don't know that it makes any difference to our story, but it shows how inconsistencies pop up all the time in news coverage. Very frustrating for a podcaster. Money from the cash register was missing, But Mary Drake's purse and wallet were still on the store counter with a loaf of bread, Sunderland said. Listeners in early news stories, the Great Bend police chief won't say that the motive was robbery, but he will confirm that money is missing from the store. Karen believes the robber, the killer, robbed her daughter killing her in the office area that was out of sight, and that Drake came in a short time later and was killed too. Listeners, we don't know if somebody told her that from law enforcement or if she's guessing. It would be easy to tell from looking at the crime scene, so, you know, maybe she did get that from law enforcement. Sunderland also believes the killer was a transient who spent that night at a local motel not far from the crime scene. Later, when police released a sketch of a person of interest seen standing outside the store in the time frame when the murders occurred, a motel employee recalled that a man fitting that description, white male, 30 to 35 years old, standing about six feet one and weighing about 175 pounds with light brown to blonde collar-length hair, had checked in on September 4th. But when he checked out the next morning, that man had shaved his head. That's what authorities told the Sunderlands 10 years ago, she said. But other than releasing the person of interest sketch, investigators released few details on the case, not even the cause of death. Almost a month after the murders, when federal officials arrested two suspects in a series of multi-state sniper attacks. Uh, she's talking about the D.C. snipers case. That's, that's that same fall. Uh, as Mandy and Mary's murders. local authorities checked for a possible connection but finally finally disclosed the women had not been shot but were killed with, quote, "a sharp object unquote. So it sounds like most people were probably thinking the women were shot. I don't know to me, that seems like law enforcement's playing it really close to the vest and maybe taking it a little too far. I can't see why saying the victims were shot is, is really doing much to help the case, I mean, to hurt the case. Anyway, in the interview, Mandy's mother is a little frustrated about all this secrecy. The families were also warned not to release the information, Karen Sunderland said. But after all this time, so 10 years, she believes some of the facts need to be known. I think law enforcement, for all they did, she said, they've done good work, but they also made mistakes. Please acknowledge the mistakes you've made. Well, with so little information, plus the fact that I'm not an expert in forensics, I can't really speak to what mistakes she's talking about. But I have to say I agree with her on getting the facts out. I come down on the side of the public's right to know. And not just because I do a podcast on these crimes. I believe the more people know, the more chance there is to catch the murderers. And we'll probably talk about that more. I, you'll, you'll definitely hear me getting frustrated in this podcast. As far as the investigation goes, there is absolutely no information about suspects other than a composite sketch and description that's released a few days after the murder it's the typical generic looking sketch could be anybody white male 30 to 35 years old six foot one or six foot two so tall 1.88 meters and 175 pounds, so on the thin side for somebody that tall, 80 kilograms or 12 and a half stone. His hair is light brown to blonde. When seen, he had a couple of days beard growth and was wearing a faded black t-shirt, blue jean shorts, and a baseball cap. The sketch shows him wearing the cap with the brim in the back. The man is described by a woman who drove up to the store and was waved away by a man who appeared to be locking up. Listeners, I do have to say that I did find an article that says this happened in the morning. Another article says in the evening, and that article appears to be quoting Chief Aching, so I'm going to assume that the article that says the morning has to be wrong. Why would law enforcement be interested in somebody locking up the store the morning before the murders? Although the same article has the bodies being discovered at 6 a.m., which shouldn't be. And every other account has the murders happening in the evening and the bodies discovered that night. So I'm going to go with for sure. It's the evening of September 4th. Anyway, if the witness's account is accurate, she drove up to the Dolly Madison shop and this man waved her off, acting like he's locking up. And it's near closing time then he's got to be the murderer. I just can't think of any innocent explanation for that. So tips did come in based on the composite sketch and the description, but as we've said, the case is still unsolved after 18 years. Five years after the murders in 2007, there is an announcement of a major development in the case. A videotape showing a man who matches the witness's description that they released the composite sketch for is enhanced. So essentially, they think they found the man the witness saw on a videotape. The police have had the VHS tape since right after the murders that it was so blurry, they say they couldn't even tell if the person was a man or woman. They won't say where they got the tape from to protect witnesses. Okay, I would guess it's from the ATM right across the street, but... There's also McDonald's and the motel. They might have surveillance, so who knows? Pictures of the man from the video are released, and even enhanced, they're pretty fuzzy. However, the dark ball cap is turned around, and it appears to have a large logo on it. Possibly a maple leaf and the word heads can be made out on the black t shirt Police release a picture of a Harley Davidson t-shirt with the words, Heads above the rest, which they believe is similar to the t-shirt the man is wearing. Law enforcement personnel, and not just the Great Bend police, but also, sorry for the break, listeners, had to cough. Yes, a dry cough. I'm <laughs> a little worried, but I have been talking for a while. Um, let's see. Okay where was I? Um, Law enforcement personnel, and not just the Great Bend Police, but also the Barton County Sheriff's Office and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Um, It was a major case in Kansas. Those guys share that they have gone through the whole tape, certainly hope so, and have identified almost all the people on the rest of the tape. And then there's this, quote, investigators also asked that other businesses in town, if they have retained surveillance recording from the period, turn them over to police for review, unquote. What? It's been five years since the murders. You haven't done that already Obligatory. I'm not a forensics expert, but doesn't everybody in the world, much less law enforcement professionals, know you have to get videotapes immediately or they get taped over? Oh, there is zero chance anyone has surveillance tapes from five years ago. Now, I don't know, maybe nowadays... They might keep CDs that long, but even then, I wouldn't think so. But who knows? Anyway, as far as we know, nothing's ever been written about the case since this particular kind of flurry of activity with the enhanced videotape. So I'm starting to understand why Karen Sutherland was maybe a little upset with uh, law enforcement in this case. It's not long at all before the police get a call from the man in the picture they released. He reports that he lives in another state, but he was living in Great Bend in 2002. He also says, I guess not unexpectedly, that he's not the murderer, and this man is quickly cleared, and At least as far as anyone's telling us, he couldn't help with the investigation. The families of the victims have made efforts over the years to keep the case alive, having vigils and doing interviews. The big advertising sign company, uh, Lamar, donated some billboards about the case, asking for information By the way, shout out to that company for doing that. Letting people use their billboards has actually led to solving some murders. A friend of Mandy's set up a Facebook page, um, Mandy with an I and Mary. That's the Facebook page. And there's a Twitter account, um, Mandy's Case. But really not... Not much new to say out there. It's sad to say, but it's a very cold case in 2020. There was a similar murder in Montana about a year before the murders in Great Bend. Many people thought the cases might be linked. And there's a lot more information about the Montana murders out there. I'm not going to go too deeply into that case, but I will give you the basics. This is from Michelle McNamara's blog, True Crime Diaries. If that name sounds familiar, then you're a true crime aficionado. Michelle is the author of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search, for the Golden State Killer. This is an awesome true crime book and as it says it's about the hunt for the infamous Golden State Killer who was just caught a couple of years ago. Um, he was also called the East Area Rapist out there and it turned out they were the same guy. That is one Of the biggest stories of the past few years about breaking a cold case. If you're not familiar with the Golden State Killer case, then you're living under a rock. Even my husband has heard about that case and he knows nothing about true crime. Michelle McNamara is the reporter credited with giving this monster serial killer, the nickname Golden State Killer, and with hounding police until they solved the case. Sadly, she died at the age of only, I think, maybe 45, 46, just before she finished the book. And very sadly, just before they caught the guy. The book was completed and published posthumously. Um, it's on Amazon. It's very good. Just an excellent true crime book. Anyway, in... Oh, shoot. I forgot to get the date on this. At Anyway, years ago when she was just doing the blog, um, Michelle McNamara wrote a post about the case in Florence, Montana and linked it with the Mandy and Mary murders. The post was called Closing Time. And I, I put the link out there in the show notes. Listeners, I'm just going to read some of it. <clears throat> Sorry. She's such a good writer. I think I'll I think you'll see what I mean. The town is so small. When I call local police about the murders of three women in a Florence hair salon in 2001, I said, I'm calling about the murders? I paused because I didn't have the women's names right in front of me. It turns out I didn't need the names. Hold on, the receptionist said and transferred me directly to the sheriff. Isn't it great how fearless reporters are calling up law enforcement? I know personally our county sheriff and our county attorney, and I can't work up the nerve to call either one about my pet local cases. And yes, Florence, Montana is very small, only, uh, let's see, in 2001, only about 900 people. Only about 750 in the 2010 census. It's very close to the Idaho border, and it's a very remote area in the middle of all the huge national forests areas out west. It's about 30 miles minutes uh, south of Missoula on U.S. Highway 93. Missoula is on Interstate Highway 90. Those are the highways that go east and west all the way across the U.S. If you were going to Kansas from there, it's about 700 miles to Great Bend. You'd probably go by way of Interstate 15, then Interstate 70, and then 80. Um, No, wait a minute. Let's see, you'd go 80, yeah, 80's north of here, so you'd go 80 and then to 70. And then um, actually to Great Bend, it'd be a couple of hours south of there, off of 70. Today, Florence is a wide spot on the highway, a couple of streetlights, gas stations, with some little businesses on the road. Okay, back to the Post. The murders. It was 11 a.m. on November 6th, 2001. When a customer pulled up to the hair gallery in downtown Florence for her manicure appointment, she noticed an oddly dressed man walking away from the salon. He wore an unusual wide-brimmed hat, possibly a fedora or top hat, and was dressed in a black calf-length duster coat. Later, he would come to be known as the oddly-dressed man, and other people in Florence would remember seeing him that day, too. But the customer didn't think much of it at the time. It was the middle of the day, and the hair gallery was located right on US 93, the busy highway that connects Florence to Missoula, 20 miles to the north. People milled about nearby. The woman entered the back entrance of the salon expecting to greet owner Dorothy Harris, 62, a chipper grandmother who was known for the crafts she made. Instead, she found Harris's body lying in a pool of blood just inside the door. When authorities arrived, they discovered two more bodies, Brenda Patch, 44, a manicurist, and Cynthia Paulus, 71, a customer who had stopped by for her weekly appointment. The women's throats had been deeply slit. Then Sheriff Perry Johnson described the violence as horrific and said there was a tremendous amount of blood at the scene. Later, police would determine that 30 minutes before the murders, Dorothy Harris had visited a bank a 20-minute drive away, so she couldn't have been at the salon long before she was killed. It had taken someone just minutes to transform the cozy business with the All About Nails sign outside into a scene that investigators would later be quoted as saying, was the single most brutal they'd witnessed in their careers. Worst of all, there was no apparent motive. No money was taken, and there was no evidence of sexual assault. The best lead was the oddly dressed man. In a town where everybody knows each other, he was a stranger. Witnesses provided similar descriptions, a top hat, maybe a fedora, and maybe a black duster coat. It was a vaguely unsettling get-up from a century ago. Bloodhounds tracked the man's scent to a nearby pasture and then lost him. The oddly-dressed man had disappeared as mysteriously as he'd arrived, like a shadowy figure in a low-tipped hat from a film noir. The case went cold. A follow-up article in the Missoulian touched on the frustration of investigators and mentioned that the murders were unlike anything in the FBI's files on mass murder. But were they? Were they indeed, listeners? The similarities between this case and the Great Bend case are striking. Small towns on major highways, Little standalone businesses, daytime murders, vicious stabbings, and cutting the women's throats. Furthermore, if you compare pictures of the beauty shop and the Dolly Madison shop, they look similar. Little sort of isolated brick buildings, and they're not open looking. By that I mean they're they're not closed stores but there's not a lot of window space in the front it's not all glass like some storefronts are there are just a couple of narrow windows at the front of both of these if you drove by or walked by you probably wouldn't see much of what's going on inside the lack of an obvious motive is also similar or Actually, I guess it's the lack of motive that's similar. There is little money missing in the Great Ben case, certainly not enough to justify murdering two people. Not that, of course, anything justifies that. And no serious robber would think a little beauty shop and a little bakery shop would be profitable targets. In many crimes like this, there's a violent sexual component, but not in either of these cases. No obvious personal motive. Plus, as far as we can tell, the main suspects are complete strangers who strike without warning and disappear, splattered with blood on a main highway in the daytime. If Michelle McNamara had written a book on these cases, she could have called it "I'll Be Gone in the Daylight." Arrests are eventually made in the Montana murders. Early on, the Ravalli County Sheriff's Office there forms the opinion that the murders are drug-related. Two men are indicted. Um, I've never seen anything other than rumors, but I didn't. I didn't get real deeply into this. I gather maybe it was thought to be a a revenge type thing. You wouldn't think any of these women would be involved in drug dealing. But I mean, who knows? I, I'm not sure why they thought it was drug related. But the two men charged were both serving time, um, pretty good time, on um, drug related charges. Um, one of the men actually pleads guilty to a drug offense to get the murder charge dropped. The other man keeps protesting his innocence, and ultimately the charges are dropped against him too. The Montana case also remains unsolved. If you're interested, there is a lot more information about this case out there. A good place to start is the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit, I didn't find um, I didn't find any podcasts about this, but I'm, I could just swear I've listened to some before and I, I didn't spend a whole time, a lot of time out there listening. but I, I bet for at least one of these, there are, are definitely some good podcasts out there, and probably some YouTube videos on these. I mentioned how law enforcement at the time looked into a link with the DC Snipers case. They definitively decided there's no link there, and I'm sure they're right. The case that came to my mind was the I-70 killer case. The I-70 case is a huge case in the true crime world. Lots of good podcasts and TV shows on the case. I have researched this case quite a bit because it's on my cases to do list for the podcast. I'm going off the top of my head here, so I might mess up details a little, but this is a pretty good summary. The I-70 killer case is from 1992. This murderer strikes along the busy Interstate Highway uh, 70. That corridor, as it goes through Kansas and Missouri from east to west. And he strikes at similar little businesses in the daytime. There are five crimes with a total of six victims. The killer apparently targets women, although a man is among the victims. He's a slightly built man who wore a long ponytail, so it's thought the killer mistakes him for a woman. You can see why I'm reminded of the Dolly Madison murders, but I think, all things considered, it's probably doubtful. Sorry. This is the same killer as Mandy and Mary's, um, mainly because the I-70 killer shot his victims, execution style. One of the cases actually isn't on I-70. It's in Wichita, Kansas, which is not on I-70. Actually, that was one of my first questions when I was researching is, why are they calling this part of the I-70 case? But it's definitively linked to all the cases by the bullets found in the victims. If I'm remembering right, a couple of years later, there are two, maybe three similar cases in uh, Texas, maybe near Houston, but they're not sure they're linked because the bullets don't match. Eh? But some people say they might be and he just changed guns. That, That could happen. Okay, listeners, it's time for while speculation, which is about all I have. Um, But don't think I will let the dearth of facts stop me from speculating. I never do. I think there are some general possibilities to consider. Targeted murder. Somebody wants Mary or Mandy dead for some reason robbery gone wrong, and random wandering serial killer or spree killer. There's there's some debate whether the I-70 killer is a serial killer or a spree killer because the five crimes he committed are pretty close together uh, time-wise. And I think typically with the serial killer... They say there's a longer period in between crimes. Anyway, we know that law enforcement usually suspects, first, people who are close to the victim. The spouse, the ex, close relatives. And sadly, statistics point to this as a very good strategy. Many women are killed by someone close to them so let's suppose to begin with that there's a personal motive here now neither victim is wealthy by any stretch of imagination at least as far as i know insurance money maybe um i personally i don't see either mary or mandy carrying huge insurance policies, but people are murdered for relatively small amounts of money. However, if someone is murdering Mary for her money, it seems like it would be much less risky to kill her when she's home alone late at night or Or ambush her in her driveway. Now, it's possible, I guess, I can speculate, that Mary enraged someone for some reason. Um, Love triangle? Family problems? Or, I guess if we consider just plain crazy people, maybe she wasn't driving fast enough, or left her turn signal on too long, or something and some unhinged person couldn't take it anymore. He pulls in behind Mary, grabs a knife, and stomps after her into the shop, killing her and Mandy in a blind rage Oh no, I I think anything like that is is really far fetched. Personally, in my opinion, I think Mary is just in the wrong place at the wrong time. If somebody's targeting one of the victims for personal reasons, I think it's more likely the target is the younger Mary, I mean Mandy. Mandy has exes and a current boyfriend. According to friends, Mandy had been divorced for a while, and there's not some monumental Betty Broderick-type divorce battle going on. There's no mention of a stalker or jealousy or anything like that, though. And as far as I can tell, the exes and the current significant others and the family were looked into, but everyone was cleared. the police are really treating this as as a random killing. If the murder was planned and, I don't know, for some kind of personal reason, um, I can see how the little shop might not be a bad place to commit the crime. I don't know if Mandy had her own place or not. She As far as I can tell is close to her family so it's possible she's moved back with them to get back on her feet and if that's the case it might be hard to kill her at home. Uh, A shop like that you wouldn't expect to be particularly busy most of the time so the killer might think he would certainly be able to find her alone In the shop sometime, which as I've said is a little isolated. It's not a very busy place. It could be that law enforcement suspects someone close to Mandy, but there's not enough evidence to move forward. Without knowing more, I'd leave the person close to her theory um, open, at least in Mandy's case. I, I don't think though that Mary's the target. Okay, so what about a robbery gone wrong? Yeah, I think that's possible. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. Very high risk for very low return. Uh, A sensible person, when you weigh the cost versus the reward, would probably... If nothing else, pick someplace else where you might have a chance of scoring more money. But if we're talking about a desperate drug addict, they do really stupid things. It's not much of a stretch to imagine a druggie hanging out around the area looking for a place to rob. There's the motel, the restaurants, McDonald's, the ATM... Um, say he's casing the area, sees the little shop, nobody's around, and just the one young woman working, um, so the murderer goes in, threatens her with the knife, and things go sideways. He panics, Mary comes in, he panics more, yeah. Yeah it's it's possible that is mandy's mother's theory and i think it's not unlikely something just like that happened i have a little trouble picturing exactly how all of this happens whatever the motive is because i'm not sure exactly where mandy and mary's bodies are found are Um, when they're found, the positions that they're in. Oh, how I wish (laughs) there was a diagram of the crime scene or something, but that's not to be. I'm going to go with both bodies being found in the little office at the back of the shop, like some of the news accounts say, Uh, both face down back there. Mary's purse and a loaf of bread are found on the counter up front, according to Mandy's mother. So maybe a couple of possibilities. Mary's already in the store when the murderer comes in, fixing to pay for her loaf of bread. That that makes sense. Um, I'm assuming the killer is watching and doesn't see her as much of a threat he herds both of them into the back office maybe or and i i guess i think this might be more likely the killer comes in when mandy's alone and forces her into the back something happens and he kills mandy While this is happening, Mary walks in, gets her loaf of bread. Maybe she hears something or, you know, calls out or rings one of those little bells they set on the counter. She might even go into the back to investigate. So whatever happens, the murderer feels he has to kill her, too. Oh, I don't know, listeners, I'm not sold on any of this. That might be because I'm I'm almost picturing this in slow motion. So, it seems like surely someone would walk in and catch the murderer in the act, but in fact, this could all happen in literally just moments two or three minutes and they could be dead and that monster's out of there and nobody pays any attention to him even if they do drive by or walk by or see him i'm not in love with the robbery theory as the motive Um, in my opinion this is more of a thrill kill Yes, there's money missing, but I don't feel like that's the primary motive. This murderer wants to kill. I'm assuming he brought the weapon with him. Now, it's possible the killer used something there at the shop. It's a bake shop, so I guess they might have knives there. Again, all this is Speculation because the police won't even say anything but sharp object. So, I mean, it could be a sword or a machete or a guillotine for all we know. I'm going to guess it's a hunting knife because they're common and effective, and we know the woman's throats are cut. As we've talked about before, yes, I've Googled how hard is it to cut someone's throat and apparently it's not that hard to do very quickly if you have a sharp blade in many cases like this you'll hear the victim's throat was so savagely cut that he she was almost decapitated well that's because if you slice across in the right place on someone's neck there is mostly just soft tissue all the way back to the spine. Sorry about that. You were warned. This is a murder podcast. Anyway, in my opinion, the best theory of the crime is something like the beauty shop murders or the I-70 killer. Um... As far as anyone knows, a murderous drifter-type crime. Uh, Could it be the I-70 killer? I can speculate that it is. After the five crimes, he stops for some reason, you know, put in jail or a mental institution for something unrelated or, you know, his life changed and he was able to stop for a while. That does happen. He's somewhat cunning, so he changes his choice of weapon to knives, silent and no bullets left behind as evidence. He could even be the Montana beauty shop killer, for all we know. Looking around the whole country, I bet we could find many similar crimes. So we, we could have a random serial killer in this case and that's, that's what I think it is. Um, this type of random crime can be very hard to solve unless a definitive pattern can be identified or there's DNA evidence. When there's a pattern so that the police know a series of killings are related series of killings is is related then sometimes by kind of a trying to find commonalities and common suspects they can solve crimes like that um they could be something distinctive about this crime that would let them definitely link it to other crimes and narrow down the suspect pool that way. Um, If there is some distinct element, no one's letting the public know about it. And considering, I'll call it, not that great state of national crime databases, the chances of identifying a helpful pattern, I I would think are kind of low, but the more information people keep putting into these databases, there's always a hope that something like that might happen in the future. Um, Another way random crimes get solved is with DNA, and advances certainly have been made in that technology since 2002, so I think that's a pretty good possibility, and I also think there might be DNA in this case, even though nobody's said so, maybe even in the Montana case. in this type of really violent crime, if there's any kind of struggle, and if the killer didn't wear gloves, like really good leather gloves, chances are murderer left some trace of himself behind, either getting scratched or, or if he... Hit something with his fist, maybe you know bleeding from that. I mean, heck, um cutting cutting his elbow on a countertop, there's all kinds of ways that he might have left some trace of himself behind, so with all the advances in technology, it's possible they'll come up with some DNA evidence. Put it into some new and improved database and, and get a killer for us. So um, I, I know that depends on the evidence being preserved properly, but this is 2002, not 1902. So, you know, I'm guessing there's still plenty of evidence that they've kept pretty well at the Great Bend Police Department, or the KBI, for this case. So I think we might, maybe, hopefully, hear something like that someday. In my opinion, Great Bend is a small enough place that if the murderer's local, and it was a personal crime, um, someone would have heard something by now and this case would be solved. But I could be wrong. Listeners, the murders of Mary Drake and Mandy Alexander shocked the little city of Great Bend, Kansas. The families of the victims have waited for going on 20 years for a resolution that's just not there yet. In my opinion, it's not hopeless. DNA somebody's guilty conscience. Those are good possibilities. As well, another hope is information from the public. As far as we know, there are still folks out there who were near or in the shop the day of the murders who have never been identified by law enforcement. So they haven't been able to talk to them to see if they might have seen something. Because of the major highways near Great Bend, many people just pass through there daily. There wasn't a tremendous amount of publicity about this case when it first happened, so it's likely a lot of those people who just passed through don't even know about the murders but they might have seen something. So please share this case and encourage people to think back to September 4th, 2002, a small Dolly Madison shop, Great Bend, Kansas. If you know something, or think you know something, Please contact the Great Bend Police Department at 620-793-4120. Mary is buried at the Great Bend Cemetery and Mandy is at Hillcrest Memorial Park in Great Bend. Findagrave.com has postings for both of them with nice pictures of their headstones and their obituaries. It's very touching if you go out there and take a look. And you can leave them virtual flowers. So that's it for this very sad case. I, I find myself driving along every once in a while just just mulling it over, trying to get some great idea that I could pass along to help law enforcement, but I, I don't really have one. So all we really have is some hope and the opportunity to keep spreading information about the case. So that's all for this particular case. Listeners, my friend, Rick at the Karata Project, asked me to thank you for your response to his plea for help. He made a YouTube video for the project. He said um, he kind of got inspired, so he thought he'd do a little work and get some more social media out there about... um, his very worthwhile project i put the link out there in the show notes if you listen to the end of the podcast you can hear his original message and i put everything on on the podcast website the web website for the karada project is karadaproject.com all one word it's that spelled k a r a d a h I wish I could share more information about this case, but I just don't have any more. This is one of those cases that's close to my heart, so I hope it's solved someday. As I mentioned, the best sources I found um, for information were Michelle McNamara's post and the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit is very good. I don't know if I mentioned that one and the Great Bend Tribune, also a couple of articles in the Hutchinson News. All the links are in the show notes, as well as the reward poster for the case. Okay, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and tell your friends. If you could leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be awesome. Um... If you can figure out how to do it, to be honest, listeners, I'm not sure how to do that on some platforms. It's easy to do on Apple Podcasts, but the rest, like Spotify and TuneIn and Deezer, I don't know. I only listen to podcasts on um, Stitcher Premium, and I only I only do it on my phone. I I never listen on my computer, but even on my computer um, I can see how to do it, but I can't find anything similar on the Stitcher app as like what's on if you're listening on your laptop. So I don't know. If, if you can do it, I'd really appreciate it. Um, anyway, um, I do love it when I get a good review. So if you can do it, it would be great. And I don't really want constructive criticism in the reviews. I have a family and friends for that. If you do want to make suggestions or ask questions or, you know, just make comments, you can email me at prison all one word at gmail The podcast website is prisoncitymurders at um sorry I always get this wrong it's prisoncitymurders.blueberry dot blueberry and it's B L U B R R Y so blueberry without the E's in it dot Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.
1: my name is Rick Burns. After multiple army deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, I founded Karada project to continue supporting peace, stability, and humanitarian efforts in those countries. In Afghanistan, there are over 2.5 million internally displaced persons. There are over 1.9 million Iraqis internally displaced. You won't hear much about these people. They live in the shadows, far away from the media attention of those crossing borders as refugees but they are in equally devastating circumstances. Forced to flee violence, war, natural disasters, poverty, and other devastating crises, innocent people, mostly women and children, are forced to live in austere camps on the edges of society where language, cultural differences, competition for jobs, and prejudice cause them to be discriminated against and ostracized. Economic opportunities are limited An education for their children is delayed or may even be halted forever. Through our local partners, we're giving displaced women marketable skills, literacy instruction, business mentoring, and earn-as-you-learn opportunities through negotiated contracts. We partner with the UN World Food Program to provide the women with food rations for their families during the six-month program. These women are pulling themselves out of poverty and improving the lives of their families. We're not stopping there. We created a kindergarten to give their children a start to their education and provide a conduit into the public primary schools. In rural areas, we are building bathrooms in girls' schools where none exist. Imagine teenage girls with no bathroom facility. We are also giving poor women self-sustaining hens and goats. These are just a few of the ways we are making the world a better place. If you want to change the world, join us.